1974, Stephen King wasn't yet the prolific author of 60-plus best-selling novels. He was a frustrated writer and schoolteacher, living in a trailer and banging out failed books on a borrowed typewriter. Carrie was the novel that changed all that. The story of an outcast young woman with a terrible secret power, this book is a page-turner and classical tragedy wrapped up into one. King's books and the movies they've spawned have become a mainstay of American pop culture over the last half century, so we thought we'd go back to where it all began. Imagine yourself at the soda counter in a rural Maine drugstore and pour yourself a creamy root beer rum cocktail. It's time for episode 64 of Toasting the Classics, Stephen King's Carrie. Welcome to Toasting the Classics, a podcast where we take something that people call a classic, talk about it, decide whether it's still a classic, and then drink something related to the classic. This time, uh, by the way, my name is Dave MacArthur. I am Clint Lanier. We are your hosts for Toasting the Classic. We um, are talking about a book this time, and it's one that I chose, that the choice fell to me this time, and I went with Stephen King's first novel, Carrie. I'm hoping this will be coming out sometime near Halloween, so we're doing something a little horror inflected a little macabre a little macabre did you notice my 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 copy by the way look at that this is original this is a 1974 oh, nice. imprint is that from the first like thirty thousand? like the like the first hardcover print it, it didn't do well in hardcover apparently copyright 1974 by stephen king my grandmama used to live in uh, roswell new mexico she doesn't anymore because she's dead her big hobby was going to thrift stores and Roswell, oh, okay. New Mexico has an uncanny amount of, of amazing thrift stores. Amazing because they have all kinds of weird stuff in there. I mean, this is the UFO capital of the world after all. I was going to so, say maybe it's the aliens. Though. Yeah. So my wife and I would go there. My wife's a big Stephen King fan. And we were finding, oh, I, think we've got, I think we've got Cujo first edition with the dust jacket. I've uh-huh. got Carrie Firestarter, all first editions with the dust jackets. Grandma would, every time we'd go visit her, she'd be like, let's go to the thrift stores. And so we'd walk around and we'd, we'd hit the book section. And Yeah, uh, that's fun. I, I like, I always get drawn to the book section of thrift stores too. Sometimes you find some weird stuff. Oh, you find some great stuff. Yeah. I have, um, we read Game of Thrones, for instance, in paperback. Uh-huh. But over the years, I, I find that used bookstores and thrift stores, like nice hardcover editions of those, yeah. like from the first, the first runs and, so I have all those, like great big, huge tomes and hardcovers. They're pretty fun. I have oh, Eyes of the Dragon, the Stephen King one. I have an yeah, original. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. a and that's really a beautiful one. Pretty book. That, yeah. The hardback because it's like all the green scales and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yep. Yeah, that's a. Yeah. We had that one too when we read Catch Twenty Two. That was a hard copy. And you had a nice copy of that. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's right. You know, dust jacket and everything else that we found. And my wife also is a big Stephen King fan, but with wow. something we share, it's something that we both read. We usually still get the new ones and listen to them on audio. So I have kind of an informal life goal of trying to read. I think he's got about 60 novels at this point. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying, I would like to read all of them at some point. This, Carrie, is the oldest of his books that I hadn't read yet. I mean, obviously it's the first book. It's the oldest yeah. of all the books. But, you know, I've read all the first 15, 20 books, I think. Cujo and The Shining and Salem's Lot, The Stand. I mean, I've, I've read all those. I've read The Stand. That, that's that's a thousand plus page book. And I've yeah, read they, it like three, thick, maybe yeah. four times over the right. years. Like I, that, that, that's still one of my favorites. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if I still think it's a great book, but I really still enjoy reading it. Yeah. So so I it, this was an opportunity to get me to read a book that I've been meaning to read for years. So I, I went for it. And like I said, it's Halloween coming up, so it seems appropriate. Well, I appreciate it because it's an easy read. It's like oh, it's an easy less, read. Yeah, it's less than two hundred pages. And like you said, it's, it's his first work, and, and we always try to 
like with Bill Cosby, we went with his first album and with mm-hmm. uh, George Carlin. We went with, so we try to, we try to get the first, and especially if they're called, people call them a, a classic and, you know, it's also considered a classic Stephen King. So another reason to choose this is that we are trying to document every single, single thing that happened in the year 1974. Yes. I think we have we have like multiple things. <laughs> we do have quite a few. I think about it. I was born in '74, so full full disclaimer here. I have never read any of Stephen King's stuff. None. Of oh, it. really? None oh, of wow. Uh, oh, okay. No, actually, no. I take that back. Oh man, I'm a big fat liar. I have read his nonfiction. I've never read any of his okay. fiction. So I've I've read that. Did you read Dance you read Macabre. on writing or, or on Dance writing uh, Dance Macabre or whatever. Um, I did read Four Seasons. Uh, which is okay. has it has uh, uh, basically stand, stand by, by me. called the body. Yep. Uh, it has the Shawshank Redemption at pupil, mm-hmm. and then what was the fourth one? At pupil became a film. At Shawshank pupil. Redemption's a film. Yeah. Stand by me is a movie. What is the other one? Uh, I can't remember if that one's a movie or whether it's at pupil that was the least likely to be. This one, the film came out in '76, so only two years after the book came out. Yeah, um, we should probably yeah, talk about a synopsis. I, we were doing an album earlier, so I sort of got in the habit. You don't need to do a synopsis of an album, but. Do you want to take a shot at the synopsis for Carrie? So in a small town in Maine, surprise, 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 um, surprise, surprise, yeah. there's a, there's a girl named Carrie White who uh, possesses, who's the sort of the, the butt of the joke in, in her high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's very frumpy and very, uh, very much a simpleton and everybody considers her ugly and stupid. And, and so they're always playing pranks on her and stuff like that. But she has a, hidden secret she actually has a uh, special power called telekinesis i was kind of surprised how the book started with just saying carrie white was telekinetic yeah. like it just the, <laughs> the, the, the book just opens right. that way like that was an well, interesting let's talk about that uh, the structure of the book i mean i i wasn't expecting it so the structure of the book it there are three chapters in, in this 200 page book i can't even remember what the first one was called um, oh do the, do, do the i can't remember if the chapters have names maybe they do uh, cha- chapter one was a blood sport okay. uh, ch- chapter two was the prom or prom night i think and then chapter right. three was wreckage i believe but within the chapters it's broken up between bits of narrative and it's kind of like this what they would call omniscient narrator so it's somebody right. who can yeah. who's speaking speaking from whatever character's perspective they want and they can also kind of tell the inside story of that person and what they're thinking and so forth so it's between that and it's bits of that throughout and like artificial journal articles and it's like, epist- it's a, like an epistolary novel sort of yeah. the way dracula is yeah right exactly and so it's a mixture of the two diary things, and stuff like that yeah and dracula but um so it's like that th- throughout uh and and uses it to the, tell a story of this of this, this there's a lot to talk about there with that choice the choice yeah. of doing the book that way because and, and you know from the beginning what's going to happen at the end you're told right away at the beginning yeah, yeah. that there's this this horrible. Well, you're teased. Thing. You're teased that it's. You're teased, it's, but, you, but like, you know it's, it's a shame that it's a shame that 200 people had to be massacred to, to understand right. that or something like that. And you're like, right? Oh, wow. So I know something good is coming up, right? Yeah. Well, you know something. Uh, there's going to be something. You don't know exactly what kind of violent right. act is going to happen, but uh-huh. there's some of the dramatic tension in the book. And I thought about this a lot because I actually watched the movie too because I'd never seen the movie. So I was like, oh, I'll watch it. In the film, they don't give away what's going to happen. You're watching yeah. it, and you're really thinking Carrie might fall in love with this hunk guy that takes her to the prom, and things might yeah. go well. And in Sissy, the book, Sissy Spacek was a terrible, 
Well, actually, I guess she was pretty good. Now that I think I about it, I thought it was actually a pretty good I movie. I, yeah. I, I thought the movie, you know, John Travolta was in it. That was weird. John Travolta was in it. I was and not then, expecting uh, that. That would be my the guy that played Tommy. The only other thing I can I can remember the guy that played Tommy. In, He's in a uh, bunch was, of stuff in the seventies. No, he was in uh, this show called The Greatest American Hero. Yep. yep. Which is yep. a great, the the best stupid show of all time. I loved that show when I was a little <laughs> that kid. Was a great that. show. Anyway. But, so, so they, so there's a lot of dramatic tension there, where you're thinking like, oh, maybe this is going to turn out okay for her. Whereas in the book, it's done. The epistolary thing where they give away what happens gives you. It's like got a. It's a tragedy. It's done yes. like a tragedy. You That's know what's exactly. going to go yes. badly. It is a tragedy. Yes. You, you see, like it's like in Julius Caesar, he gets multiple opportunities to avoid his yes fate and he just won't avoid his fate it's like breaking bad is the same thing the guy yeah. keeps getting chances to avoid this terrible fate and right. carrie it's not about her choices she doesn't make the choices that lead to the terrible everybody fate. else other, the other people do you know so you're yep. watching you're just kind of like why don't they just leave this poor girl alone no, it's, a, it's, a, it's a slow moving train wreck and you already you've already right. seen the aftermath and by so i think that's that, i think that's an interesting choice but it's actually really effective i think, up that I think that, that's that's where that's where sort of the genius of this is is that we really feel sorry for her like we start yeah. liking her and seeing all of this you know seeing everything good about her by the time you get to the end and so you completely eat you're you're filled with empathy like mm -hmm. for her when it gets to that point you're like i don't quite blame her you know right. i don't know if i'd go that far but i mean you, you understand it at least and and centering on a girl who's the butt of every joke i mean who what kid you know, Can't the, the, the worst thing right. that can happen to a kid in school, including me and probably including you and anybody that's listening, was to be made fun of, mm -hmm. you know, in school, to be the butt of a joke and have everybody laugh at you. You know, I mean, I remember the, this kid that accidentally peed his pants. You know, we were like in first or second grade or maybe even kindergarten. But that you never live that down. You're always the no. kid to peed your pants, you know. In yeah, front of, you're, you know, still, you're still you're still p boy when you graduate yeah or something yeah. right it's terrible and and so so traumatic and so this poor girl goes through this her entire life up until the end right i had a creative writing uh professor one time i think denigrate stephen king and i think that might be why i never really read his stuff because mm -hmm. um, we talked about we talked about a lot of like popular fiction writers like elmore leonard yeah was a fantastic writer uh, and he talked about, he was talking about him in terms of dialogue and how good he is at dialogue and, and that he, he really is. If you ever read Get Shorty, the dialogue between the characters and Get Shorty was amazing. And then he talked about Stephen King in terms of character development. Yeah. How he really it's developed all his characters. But then his criticism was that it seems like, like King gets bored of his characters towards the end. Oh, yeah. His endings are usually too. This one's not. This but one this is one, not classic think, Stephen King. This one is a is a book from start to finish. The plot yes. finishes up and exactly it's very, where it's it should. Really short. And that might be, yeah. you know, my Kevin McElroy, rest in peace. He just passed away from a sudden heart attack. God bless him. He was one of the best writers and professors I've ever I've ever had. But he, uh, you know, I, I think his his criticism was of those thousand page books that King right. might write. You know, by the end of it, you're so freaking tired of, of looking yeah, at this story sure. and thinking about it and everything else, but you're you got to get there. And I, I, I can't say as I blame him to get bored or whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah, he, he goes over long sometimes. Um, yeah. But even in the long ones, it, it's like this. They read really fast. They yeah. read well. Elmore Leonard's a really good comparison because they're both 
very solidly middle brow writers, mm -hmm. right? They're not writing garbage. It's not pulp, you know, but yeah. it's not serious literary fiction either, obviously. Yeah. But I think both of them are good enough at what they do that people almost criticize them as if they were yeah. writing literary fiction. It's, it's That's a good not, point. It's really not point. what this is. You know, this is a, this is a, a thriller. You're supposed to turn the page. Yeah. It's supposed to be fun to read. But it's well, really I mean, well done. I will say in the case of Stephen King, you know, I get what you're saying. I think you're right. I think what happened, though, is he gets unfairly criticized as if it's, you know, highbrow fiction because right. Hollywood has decided to make his books, uh, you know, represent his books in Hollywood. So, so like his books become like mainstream kind of stories, right? And I will say this, like, because I know we're going to get to the movies and stuff eventually. I can't think of any movie, with the exception of The Green Mile, um, any good movie that's been made from one of his novels. His short story- Shining. Okay. I, okay, I'll get that. But that was Kubrick. If it, and and he, yeah. Kubrick, yeah. Kubrick wildly changed it, though. And King he did. Hated, he did. King, King doesn't hated, like it. He doesn't King like the, the, the final version. And, and that was because it was Kubrick, and Kubrick just did what he wanted, right? Yeah. Okay, I'll give you that one. And I'll give you Green Mile, because again, Green Mile is one of the more recent I've neither seen that movie nor read the book somehow. Um, I don't. I, I haven't gotten around if, to that. I yet. wonder if there's a, if there's some connection with the Shawshank Redemption because it really felt like the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Um, which is, I think, is by far the best you know movie that's ever come out of a Stephen King story. I, barely. I, I, <laughs> love, I like Shawshank. I like I love Shawshank a lot. I think you're probably right, but I love Stand By Me. Stand By Me is one of my favorite okay, movies. Stand, Stand By Me is another short story, though. But it's a short story, yes, definitely. Yeah. Or a novella or something like that. It's not, yeah. a, it's not a full novel. But um, I don't know whether I like Shawshank better than Stand By Me. I just really love that movie. I've seen it. Stand By Me, Stand by me is kind of generational because that was yeah, I think so, the yeah. 80s and... and you know, you got kids. It's almost like Stranger Things before Stranger Things. You know what I mean? Oh, Stranger Things is definitely based on Stand it's By Me. It's totally. Kind of like Goonies. Goonies yeah. and Stand By Me. Yeah, you exactly. Know, all the eighties. All the eighties stuff. Actually, um, I really thought Carrie was good. I I enjoyed Carrie. I thought it was a pretty good movie. Um, but I'm trying to think of. Did you Did you see the new Ghostbusters movie? The one mm -hmm. The one with uh, Scott with um, Paul Rudd in it. No, I didn't. There's a, there's a bit where he's like their science teacher and he just is really slacking off and does so he lets them watch Cujo. Oh, the nice. film Cujo. He's like, that's a wonderful movie about a dog that eats a bunch of people. Here you go. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it teaches you about rabies, I guess, right? Uh huh. I think Salem's Lot was pretty good. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that. I'm just. I mean, they were not okay. great. Not great though. No, okay, not great. You know, what was the one about the cat people? That was a weird one. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, then there was, I, I think, I think is a short story actually, not a novel. And there was one called Nine Lives, which I think was a bunch of short stories. Ah, Tales from the Crypt was good though. I like that one. That was fun. Creep uh, Show. Creep, Creep Show. Yeah. Creep Show. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, I really liked. Uh, I liked Silver Bullet. That's based on one of yeah, his novellas. I remember that. Uh, I know, that that's great. not great. I went back and watched that again with the kids not too long ago, and I was like, yeah. oh, I liked this when I was a kid, but it's not that yeah. good. Like it's okay, but. I mean, they're just, and, and that's the thing. It's like, none of them are bad. I mean, they're okay, but no. really good movies go. Yeah, yeah it's funny. Not. It's funny that there haven't been more good movies made from his stuff. A lot of it is his writing. So you could see why the movies don't turn out to be all that great. Because yeah. I enjoy the way he writes. I like his prose. His prose is so, it's just easy to, to gobble up. You know, I was reading this book. I had just read, I did an episode uh, before about Virginia Woolf. And like sitting down and reading Carrie, 
was such yeah. a breath of fresh air. So <laughs> yeah, easy to read. I, I imagine like, so. Yeah, you know, it was just Ooh. a pleasant read. I just sat down. I basically just laid in bed and read the whole book like in one sitting. It was just an easy, yeah, easy breezy read. So yeah, so but we didn't really do the synopsis, I guess. But basically, there's it's a young girl who's telekinetic. She's always had her power. She's been controlling them, but she decides that she's. She gets picked on at the beginning of the book, like to make up to her. The one girl has her boyfriend take Carrie to the prom, which is weird. It's a weird, weird thing to do. I don't know where, I don't know how I feel about that whole bit of the plot. That seems like a strange thing to send your boyfriend with another girl and skip the prom. I, get, I don't know. So she goes to the prom and unfortunately some of these other girls decide to take revenge on Carrie by dumping a bucket of pig's blood on her head when she's crowned prom queen. And Carrie just decides to murder everyone that she can in the town. Um, she kills a whole bunch of the kids at the, at the school and then, you know, sets fire to buildings all over the city and, or the town. It's not a city, but that's essentially the plot right there. Spoiler alert, I guess. But like we always say, if you, you should probably read these, these things. Yeah, before, yeah, before you listen to our show. Course, yeah. There's also the, there's always uh, great subplots like uh, Carrie has a crazy mom who's a, a religious zealot. But beyond that, she's like hysterically crazy <laughs> religious right. zealot and, and thinks that everything is a sin and going to the prom is a sin and blah, blah, blah. And, right. And and so she seems there's, there's no religion that teaches you to behave this way. This is I don't know whether this is Stephen King's idea of how fundamentalist Christians behave or whether it's, you know, he's depicting an insane person, but uh, this is not, uh, her, Carrie's mother is not representative of Christians, I don't think. I think that would be a fair depiction of what they're, although I remember, I was thinking for something about the way they described the house, and you've probably been to houses like this too. There's some houses that are so religious, like there's so much iconography and such a yeah. sense in the house that they're just like really stifling places to go to. Right. Like my grandparents, my stepmother's family, we would go visit them and they were really nice people, but their house just always seemed so stultifying when I was there. There were all these pictures of Jesus everywhere and stuff. And it just, it was a very uncomfortable atmosphere. And I was, I was very much picturing that with Carrie's house and with her mom, although obviously her mom's super, super crazy, not just, not just religious, but. I mean, fundamentalist Christian. I don't think he thinks this is fundamental Christian. I think he, he thinks of her as more of a zealot, like I said, and it would be more like, you know, talking about, an Islamist who you know thinks that they should kill Christians and, and stuff like that. I mean, it's that it's that same mindset. I don't think they're representative. No, at all. and they're yeah. not supposed to be representative. I think it's it's as far out as you can go, you know, and be crazy about something. I will say that I was so disappointed by the way she killed her mom. <laughs> oh, I thought that was kind of cool how she stopped her heart with her mind. I thought that yeah, was yeah, just sort of slowly stopped like her that. heart. No, I, I would have inflicted a lot more pain. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's still her mother, right? She probably doesn't want to. I guess uh, not, because she she's then she's calling for her mother at the end. You know, I mean, it was it was sad. It was um, so the thing where the thing where tra- tragedy of, is the best way to put it. Sorry, go ahead. It's a tragedy. Yeah, it's definitely written as a tragedy, hundred percent. Um, the thing where her mother controls her mind to the point where she has like no idea about sexuality and stuff like that. That to me, my first, I was, I was, I was reading that and I was like, well, that's ridiculous. Nobody's like that. But then I remembered, I just watched this documentary about uh, Warren Jeffs and his cult out in, out in uh, Utah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they were interviewing these women and these women had no idea the facts of sex and stuff like that. 
Like until they would marry these creepy old guys, they literally did not know what was happening. Wow. Yeah. And I, and I was thinking, so it is possible. I mean, and this was, they were interviewing the actual women and they, they were telling these stories. They were like, I had no idea how sex worked. I didn't know anything about it. Like it was just terrifying to me. And I was like, I guess some people think you're just supposed to repress all knowledge like that. Well, this was in 70. I mean, it's set in like 72, 73. I don't think they were teaching the facts of life like they are now. You know? No, probably not. Yeah, not um, in school, right? So, so if you, if the parent isn't teaching it, and, and I think at that time, just sort of taken as a given that the parents would teach, like that was the realm of the parents. Like mm -hmm. you teach your kids that, we're going to teach them reading, writing, and arithmetic, and you do the rest of it. Well, before we get too much farther, why don't we uh, pour our drinks? Oh, yeah. Okay. So what so, are we, this was, this was your choice. Even though this was my choice, you did a good job of coming up with an idea for what to drink, so... Well, I tried to find a, a a cocktail that had something to do with pig's blood, but I couldn't. I couldn't. Oh find yeah, no thanks. That would have been awful. <laughs> <laughs> would have been off-putting. I like that. You know, yeah, I realized it would have been you know, slightly off-putting. Um, so instead, it, one of the big scenes there, they, there's this place, this Kelly's, I think, this Roadhouse or whatever they go to, um, mm -hmm. that the kids go to. It's like a soda fountain where they have a root. Yeah, beer. soda fountain, right? They have a root beer for a, a nickel, I think, is what it is. Um, you know what's weird about this book? Before I forget about it, is huh? it's it takes place in the near future. It takes place in 1979. Oh, did it? Yeah, that's a weird choice. Why do that? Yeah. I don't really understand. But anyway, I guess I guess so that the all of the explication from all those kind of uh, yeah, that makes so sense. It hasn't so happened have time yet. To, yeah, yeah, okay. you're gonna, you're gonna, you're going to read about this or something like that. Right, um, right, right. So you know, I, I, was, I was thinking about that because you mentioned the soda fountain. Yeah. And I was thinking when I was a little kid, drugstores, actually a handful of them still had a soda fountain, okay. uh, like a bar where you could sit and get sodas and stuff like that in the drugstores in, in Northern Virginia, where I grew up. And they faded out as the 80s went on. Like right. they started remodeling all those. And I, I distinctly remember the one near my house at the bar where they used to have the soda bar but it was like they were just storing things back there so it was yeah. just like part of the building but they, they it wasn't being used at all anymore which is kind of i always liked those for some reason yeah i liked them too um, they kind of have that at target now there's always a little snack bar in the target where you can go and get you know a popcorn and a, or soda yeah, or something like that so it's kind of bringing that bringing that back to some extent but anyway you were you were saying about the drink what are we drinking yeah so this is uh this is called a root beer float cocktail so it's one and a half ounces of uh, spice drum. I'm using Captain Morgan. I'm using Captain um, Morgan as well. A three quarter cup of root beer. Then it says one shot of vanilla coffee creamer. I'm actually just so give me the give me the give me the ratio again for the for how much rum and how much um so how much what, of the creamer. So one and a half ounces of spiced rum. That's a so shot. One and a half. Okay. So okay. what's that? What's what's in a standard shot? One ounce. Uh, well, about one and a half ounces. Oh, okay. So a shot. All right. All right. Then three quarter cup of root beer. I think I can eyeball that pretty well. I just realized for some reason they sold me expired root beer. I don't think that's dangerous or anything. It just says <laughs> this L by date was August of, of uh, 2020. I don't, think, I don't think that'll. I think I'll live, but that's. I weird. don't think that will be as off putting as pig blood would be. No. And then uh, an ounce of cream. Okay, so a little bit less cream than I did of the of the Captain Morgan. Okay, right. I got a coffee mate vanilla, which is not something I keep around. I actually never put cream in my coffee. It's not bad. So this it tastes like it tastes like when a a root beer float melts. 
Yeah, which is the kind of a kind of one of the best parts of a root beer float. I would say so. Did you shake or stir or what do you I doing? just stirred this one, yeah. Pour it all over ice and then stir it. All right. I think if you if you shook it, you'd get too much kind of water, water down. I think you'd get too much foam too from the yeah, root beer. True. True. Makes sense. All right. Well, that's tasty. Yeah, not bad. It's kind of like a kind of like a white Russian almost, huh? Oh, I would drink that all the time. I don't taste the rum at all, by the way. I just taste root beer float. Same here. Which is good. And I don't like root beer, by the way. Root which beer is dangerous. <laughs> which is dangerous. It is dangerous. It is dangerous. <laughs> I could probably drink like three or four of these. Yeah. There's lore about this book, and I guess I guess it's true. So when he wrote this, he was a school teacher and he was kind of a frustrated writer. He had some short stories published. This was his fourth novel. So he wrote three prior to this, but none of them were ever published. He right. just he couldn't find a publisher. He couldn't get published. They're living in a trailer, and he borrows. There's a there's a lesson in there somewhere, huh? Yeah. About writing your first book and not yep. getting it published. Oh, and yeah, exactly. Sticking and not to it and not yeah. giving not giving up, right? Right. I wonder who I've told that to before. But uh, so he's in his. They're living in a trailer. He borrows his wife's portable typewriter, hammers out the first three pages, and just crumples it up and disgusts and throw, throws it away, right? Because mm -hmm. And, and he, he talks about this in, on writing. Um, he's like, here I am, you know, this, you know, late 20s school teacher. He's like, what the hell do I know about what is going on with women, you know, as they go right. through puberty and stuff like that? He's like, what am I, why, what am I writing? You know, throws it away. He's just disgusted with himself. His wife pulls it out of the trash and makes him finish the story and says, you know mm -hmm. what, I'll, I'll help you with the women's perspective. You just... I feel like you have to finish it. It's like, okay, wh whatever. So he finishes it, sends it off, and it gets it gets snatched up by Doubleday, like right away. Uh, yeah. And they send him like a $2,500 um, check. And he was like dead broke at the time. His um, wife is a big part of his success. Like the fact yeah. that they've been together since the very, you know, they've always stayed together. Um, she really helped him with this one, maybe even helped with writing it, I think, to some extent. She's a writer in her own. Yeah. Uh, in her own. Ta Tabitha? Tabitha? Tabitha King, yeah. And also she pulled him out of um, like a suicidal battle with like addiction and alcoholism. Yeah, yeah. Like she basically staged like a really heavy intervention and threatened to leave him and stuff like that. And he actually got cleaned up and was, uh, I don't know if he'd still be alive if he was doing what he was talking about, yeah, drinking was, bottles of mouthwash and stuff like that. Like oh, he was, he was off the rails. He didn't remember writing Cujo. Yeah. I've like heard he that. that. Yeah, he that's... wrote that completely drunk, you know, and, and yep. yeah, sent this off. Got it picked up. He got a he he at the time it was kind of funny. He, he his phone service was turned off because they couldn't pay it. Right. His, right. his phone was, was turned off. Double day publisher, the editor, had to send him a telegram uh to tell him that his book's getting picked up and, and gave him a twenty five hundred dollar advance against it. So then he used that he used that money to buy a, a brand new Ford Pinto. My mom had a Ford Pinto station wagon, so I am I am totally in that era. <laughs> it's the worst car you could possibly get, poor guy. A Pinto, yeah. Well, at least he had a car. I guess he, he had a car. car before. But he even talks about it in, in that book on writing about you know how he he thought that it would just be kind of a flash in the pan type of thing, and then he wrote his next one, whatever his next one was. Well, they got a really modest signing bonus, but yeah. then I think when the book got optioned uh, for a film. He got a really big. Yeah, bonus. he got a lot of money off. off they got of they, the publisher got five hundred thousand dollars for the rights, right. and Stephen King took half of that. 
Yeah. So if you can imagine the guy writing in his laundry room of their trailer and yeah. a year later, he's got a $250,000 check in 1974 dollars, mind you. Right. Um, yeah. That's just, I can't even imagine having your life change like that. You know, that's what he devoted his life to. I mean, I'm, I mean, he, he just devoted his life to it. Like that's what he wanted to do. He knew that that's what he wanted to do. I came into it a lot later, you know, mm-hmm. I wanted to write and so forth. Um, I wish I realized it a lot earlier in my life, but like he did, but uh, you know, he just stuck to it. Like that's what he wanted to do. Great success. Might be a lesson in there. Yeah. Great success story. So how are you doing, by the way? We're going to veer off to you, folks. How are you doing with your writing? Oh, I'm not, I haven't been, it's, you know, we just got Alex into this, um, He's going to be taking classes two days a week at this sort of school that's for homeschool kids where the kids where they can go and do a class a couple times a week. And I think I may start using that time to write because right now when I'm homeschooling, it's just there isn't any time. I'm just yeah, not, I, know, I, I get that. There's nothing left in the tank in terms of time at the end of the day. Like, so because I will say it, it takes so long to write. I mean, the book that I that I finally it, it was finally getting published of mine. Um, I started that in 2017. Mm-hmm. here it is, you know, 2022, it's going to be 2023 by the time it's actually published. So, yeah, wow. And it, it is, it is so much time you got to devote to, to, to thinking about it and writing it and revising it and, and correcting it and just on and on and on. I, I did actually rewrite my opening and I do have something, it is a little different now. And I think I could probably turn it into something to, to do another round of attempt to getting of attempts to get published. So I, yeah. I, I think once I get a little bit of time, I think I will actually do that, but. I'm also considering just starting another idea and writing another book. Why not? Maybe coming back to this one later at some point. But well, I think um, King, King did, he was famous for, he, he would work until like noon every day. He'd get up at like five or six in the morning and he would write straight. Oh, he's got a really good work ethic. He is. And that's why he's so prolific. I mean, you talk about the 60 novels and then he has all these novels that, that were written uh, under, you know, Richard Bachman and like pseudonyms mm-hmm. and stuff. Yep. The first three books that he wrote before he wrote this, the ones that he couldn't get published, he subsequently released all three of them as Bachman novels. I think it's like Rage, The Long Walk. I haven't read any of them. I don't know if I've ever read a Bachman novel, except I read The Running Man, the, the, the short story. So it must yeah. be like a Bachman short story collection that I read. I think it is, yeah. But I don't remember what that would be called. He did write those books. And one thing that I could really relate to is he said something about how he just kind of got the idea for this book. And it wasn't his favorite idea for something that he could write, but for some reason he found himself able to write it. So he just rolled with it. And that's exactly what I did with the first book that I actually sat down to write. I look back at my list of ideas for books and it's not my, it's not my favorite of the concepts for the book, but for some reason I found myself able to get writing and it just happened. So there's something to be said for that, for pursuing, I don't know, the path of least resistance for whatever reason. Because some of the better ideas I have, I don't have an opening and they're a little harder to get going on. I think he also wrote this at a time when like telekinesis was sort of in the zeitgeist. Like I I, I remember in the 70s, you know, telekinesis was was everybody was talking about. It. There's this dude that would like supposedly bend his spoons. Yeah, 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 yeah. And use his mind to bend it. It turned out like the amazing. Is that the amazing Kreskin? I don't know. It was yeah, some Russian guy or something like yeah. that. Turned out he was using like this this spoon that was made of like basically wax. And so you'd yeah. rub it in the same spot and it just like bend over. It was all, all complete crap. ESP. I remember Leonard, Leonard Neboy had like a, like a series on like unexplained mystery type of stuff. Something like that. It's like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, the Bermuda triangle. But then there was also like, 
ESP, he can move stuff with his mind and all of a sudden, like it was a big part of the 1970s. I think Time Life Books even had like a series about it or something like that. Oh, I remember the Time Life Books. Yeah, Time Life series, Books. Mysteries of the Unknown. I yeah, that kind of stuff, that kind of junk. Super and spooky so, commercials. And so when he, when he came out with this book, it just sort of makes sense. It sort of fits into that time when everybody was attracted to that because this isn't this is not a horror movie or a horror book at all, and it, and it doesn't really match what his what his he's known for in his genre. I don't know. It's it's a um, it's a horror telling of the psychic subject, right? Like because there's all this you know gore and killing and things like that. So I, there's there's a horror aspect to this. I mean, it's definitely like okay. I'll, I mean, I'll give you I'll give you that, but it's not. I think that's one of the reasons why the tragic format is so effective is because it's it's the the whole last thing w- is a lot scarier when you kind of know it's coming in, coming through the whole book. I think it builds up to it. So it's yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if it's scarier, but there's this weird sense of voyeuristic desire just to see how she's going to do it. Right. Well, like, isn't that? I think that's know, a big she, part she, of she, horror, she, right? Is she, she going to make people's heads explode? Right. I mean, that's kind of what I thought. Actually, yeah. the way she built the people was different than what I thought was going to happen. Yeah, um, more efficient, I guess, though. Yeah, 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 definitely. A little more creative. Because I was, yeah, I mean, she didn't just, like, she killed the mom with just direct telekinetic attack, I guess. One question I had as I was, as sure. I was reading it, um, how much of, so he likes to use characters kind of across his books. Uh-huh. He'll base characters on other characters, or he'll name them from other characters. Yeah, did you notice one of the characters in this book was, was the, had the name of the kid from Stand By Me? Okay. Teddy that's Duchamp. That's an example. That's right. the Corey Fe- the Corey Feldman yep. character. So that's a good example. But I was wondering, uh, Christine. So Christine's the bad the bad person here. Bad car. The bad car. Exactly in the in the the book Christine. Oh, Chris. Yeah, Chris Harginson is yeah, the Chris Harginson. villain in this one. And yeah, she, and she's called Christine like once. I think her dad called her. Somebody I called think so. Her. Yeah, I am Christine. I am pure evil. You know, her, her boyfriend, Billy, or whatever his name is, or is it Bobby? Uh-huh. Billy and Tommy. The, the main character in Christine, the guy who gets the car, essentially turns into Billy. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You know, with the leather jacket, he's a greaser and everything else. And he's a, he's a complete jerk and, and he's like abusive. I mean, he turns into the same character. Yeah, he's kind of like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing in that book. Like he sort of turns into a bad dude because of the car. Um, right. It starts and out as kind think, of a nerd, I think, if I remember right. In Christine, the car is a Plymouth Fury, a 1958 Plymouth Fury. This book, it's... The car? Oh, I don't know what the car was. It's, a Buick, it's a Buick Biscayne. A Buick Biscayne? Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's what, that's what uh, Billy drives. And you look at it... I remember the car is in 1963. Sort of, sort of looks like, yeah, it sort of looks like a Fury, but it's not as old as Christine was. Yeah, my uh, my girlfriend in college, her name was Christine. Uh-oh. She had a she had a poster on her wall of the movie Christine and said, <laughs> "I am Christine. I am pure evil." I thought that was yeah. I, I would be running at that point. Yeah, uh, I'm really liking this cocktail. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's a good. It's a good drink, actually. I really enjoy it. But anyway, so I saw that. Um, I was wondering how much of it he, he took from from that. Like for a writer like him, if how many of those decisions are explicit or implicit or or if he kind of makes them subconsciously yeah uh, his characters his characters um i think are very well done in a lot of ways they're always very compelling when you read his characters but there's a couple of things i mean in terms of the way they talk is always very similar 
They all have, and it, Elmore Leonard does the same thing. He's got kind of his go-to shticks for the way people talk in his books, and yeah. Stephen King totally does that. There's yeah. expressions his characters always use. And one of the things that's always driven me crazy mm -hmm. is every single character is as well-read as Stephen King. Yes. So you yeah. get, like, characters that are supposed to, like, there's a character in The Stand who's, like, a East Texas, like, like out-of-work, you know, factory worker. Right. And he's making references to Watership Down and like all yeah, kinds of, yeah. I'm like, oh, this is not, this is not realistic. Yeah. No, that's, that's a, that's a really good point because I think I, I had thought of that at one time. I think like Sue, there's a part where Sue and Tommy are talking and they're mm -hmm. referencing all this stuff. I'm like, I would, I would not have known that in high school. If I was a high school kid. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. He does that, that all, a, a really does that all the time. Yeah, everybody knows about you know the romantic poets and, and things like you know like really these high school kids in a little man yeah, like really that's well it. I don't I don't know about that yeah no that's a really good point I I had thought of that before I think generally speaking though I, I you know I think I'm gonna give it a shot my daughter's actually reading reading uh, Cujo right now oh yeah okay Cujo's Cujo is a pretty good book um, yeah. the movie's not good and the book ends in a really downer way I really yeah. didn't like it. I didn't like that book, but it's very good. It's one of his best. But uh, yeah, so it's a good book. So obviously, well, she's she's pretty old though, right? She's not like she's like fifteen, she's, sixteen. She's fifteen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, she's turned sixteen. Yeah. Alex was um, asking me if you could read Stephen King the other day, and I was like, ah, I think you need a couple more years. There's yeah. some material in there that I feel like I'd be abusive yeah, if I exposed sure. you to it as an eleven-year-old. I think we actually bought a copy of The Shining at the hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. Oh, interesting. Fired yeah. it. The Stanley Hotel. That's what it is. The Stanley yeah, Hotel. Okay. This is Park. Um, in their gift shop, they actually have The Shining, copies of The Shining, which sure. makes sense. Sure. Although they don't have Dumb and Dumber on DVD. I didn't understand that one. I, I don't think there's... Do they go to Estes Park? And, yeah, is it Dumb Estes Park they go to in Dumb and Dumber? I thought they went to Aspen or something They like do. That. It, it was filmed in Estes Park. And, and uh, oh, okay. the, hotel, yeah. the hotel they stay at is the Stanley oh, Hotel. It's the same hotel. And oh, so that, that bar, that bar, that scene where he walks through the bar, he's is like, "Hey, we landed on the moon." You know that scene. That mm -hmm. that was in the actual bar. So we walked into the bar, and I mean, it's directly from the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we walked up to the bar, and I used to know that stupid movie. You know every line. So he walks up to the bar. He's like, "I'll take a bowl of loud mouth soup," right? And uh, so we walked up to the bar, me and my buddy. We're like, oh, a couple of bowls of loudmouth soup. And yeah. the bartender literally rolls his eyes and sighs. <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, wow. Oh, you know? Yeah. <laughs> they, he, they, they're not as proud of that movie as they are uh, The Shining. So, yeah, I, yeah, I, I can see that. I can see that. Um, one of the things I noticed about this book, there's a couple of things. Um, but one of the things I noticed is this is a lot like if somebody decided to write a novel treatment of Jean Grey or, or one of the other X-Men. Carrie's very much like an X-Man. Yeah, you know? I was thinking the same thing. She's yeah. got this power. She's got childhood trauma that triggers the power. It's, yeah. it's, it's specifically referenced as being a genetic mutation. It's Jean Grey, um, yeah, absolutely. It's you know? yep. And I, I looked it up because I was thinking it reminded me of Rogue, but I looked it up. Rogue actually wasn't introduced until 1981, but Jean Grey goes back to the very beginning of the X-Men. She the, becomes what she I remember. the Dark Phoenix, I think, and Dark Phoenix, like, yeah, basically exactly. tries to destroy the world, and and, the, and she's the, very, very powerful, and you yeah. know, psychic and stuff like that. I, I, I'm pretty sure Stephen King read Marvel comics, and yeah. I'm not sure there's um, no influence here. Like, I, 
Oh, there's got to be. Yeah, there's got to be. Yeah. Or, or maybe the other way, too. I mean, if you think about it, like the first iteration of, of uh, X-Men movies, the one that came out early 2000s or late 90s, maybe. Yeah, something like 99. Yeah. Like they talk about a genetic mutation and isolating it mm-hmm. and stuff like that, which is sort of at the end of, of this book. They sort of talk about that and deciding that's a gen- genetic mutation and blah, blah, blah. And there's that little coda at the end where there's a little girl who has the power, yeah. like another yeah. one. So it's kind of yeah. interesting. I don't know where he was going with that. But. You know, that's interesting because that's actually, I think that's directly taken from one of the X-Men movies. It might be from the original X-Men where at the end there's like there's like some little kid in like a preschool like that sounds familiar. Like like levitating blocks or something like that. Yeah, I could see that. You know I don't remember, yeah. but that seems like something I've seen. So I know in one of those it was like that. It was kind of like making the point like there are more mutants out there. Um and they did that with Star Wars with the little kid that picks up yeah, the group. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right, yeah. Maybe they influence each other and, and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, definitely. I mean, those kind of comic stories definitely would influence things like this. But the other thing I was thinking about is that this is 1974, right? which is way before Columbine, right? Mm-hmm. But these stories, these like school shooting stories, that's like what this is. This is just somebody doing a school shooting with their with telekinesis, basically. That's a good point. And, I didn't that. And I was thinking, I was like, oh, it seems like it's before that time, right? Yeah. It seems like before the school shooting thing, which it kind of is because Columbine, I think, was really where that really got into our minds. But there was a story, there was like the guy in Austin that went up on the on the watchtower, on the water tower and shot people. And there were incidents like that. There was one where a man decided to kill all the kids in a small schoolhouse out in Iowa or Nebraska or something like that, set off the, wa- set off the boilers that exploded and killed everybody in the building. It wasn't a deliberate act, but there was a story about an explosion in a Texas high school um, mm-hmm. that was like in the gas fields or something like that. And some gas built up in the school and exploded and killed like the entire school class of this one high school out in Texas. Um, so, so it's out there. Right. But this specifically, I was thinking about like how the bullying triggers her to kill everybody. Yeah. I was thinking how that almost seems like that's why they enter. Did you ever read? There was a book about Columbine just called Columbine that gets into what really happened. Like years later, they did like a, you know, like literary journalism kind of take on it where they get into what happened. And really the bullying narrative isn't what happened. Like nobody was bullying those kids. Yeah, And I was thinking, I wonder if Carrie and things like it are the reason why people sort of put that narrative on the Columbine. You know, they're like, oh, you bully a kid and then they snap and murder everyone. No. Is this is is that trope from this book? Yeah, that's a really good but, point. I mean, especially I know, and also um, from the film as well. Basketball Diaries was, was uh, kind of criticized for that scene in the movie and from the original book where he walks into school wearing a trench coat, pulls out a shotgun and starts shooting kids. I don't remember that. In basketball remember Diaries? Basketball Diaries, yeah. Um, Does that actually happen or is that like a fantasy? It's a fantasy. And that's oh, okay. Fantasizing. Okay. But, you know, remember the kids in, in Columbine, they called themselves the trench coat mafia yeah. and, and stuff like that. And in, and in the movie and in the book, he's wearing a trench coat and yeah. he's got a shotgun. Those were like to get revenge on society it's this angst that yeah this yeah. generation kind of had 
in our previous podcast, like three weeks ago, I can't believe I still remember this. Like it's fresh in my mind. Right. You referenced right. Pearl Jam, uh, Jeremy, right? Jeremy. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking and, about that. Yeah. And, and it wasn't because he was being bullied. It was because like his mom and dad. No, they're picking on him. Well, clearly, picking, I, clearly, I remember picking, picking on the boy. boy. Yeah, I see him on this little yeah, something. Yeah. But, but he had other problems too, but you know, yeah, and the problems yeah. at home, his mom and dad and neglected them and all this other stuff. So, you know, know, it's similar because if you think about it, Eddie better, I'm assuming it's him who wrote the lyrics of the song, but admitting that he picked on the kid yeah. and that he feels bad about picking on the kid is what Sue is doing in this book. It's like, she participated in the hazing and the picking on the girl, right. but she's like, Oh, I really shouldn't have done that. But she, yeah. admits, she, she comes clean and admits that she did it, but she's like, yeah. that was a really crappy thing to do. So that's and sort she, of well, and she admits that she's done it their entire life. Like she's always, but she says she's never been the instigator. Right. You know, she's been, but she's always participated. Yeah. Which is, first, right? which is, you know, I can, I can see that. I don't know. I remember when I was a kid, I was getting picked on by this kid named Donald. <laughs> uh, and he, and he would sit with like his little cronies in the back of the bus. He was always picking on me on the bus and just being a total jerk. Um, and, they, and he would get everybody else to laugh because, like, you know, he was kind of the ringleader. And so they would, he would pick on me and everybody would laugh at me because he was picking oh, on me. Oh, they're laughing at you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so one day we get to school and I stood up and I'm towards the front of the bus and, there, and he's just mouthing off about me at the front of the bus. Everybody's laughing. All those little cronies around him are laughing. I stood up and I walked to the back of the bus and he's like, mouthing off. And I hit him as hard as I possibly could in the stomach. <laughs> I never, I, I never punched anybody before in my life. And he yeah. went, he doubled over, you know, totally knocked the, the wind out of him. And then I just turned around and walked off the bus. I didn't stay yeah. there and do anything else. Never happened again. Yeah. That's, never they, nobody ever picked on me again they yeah they, but that's practical that's that's not you snapping and murdering everyone on the school bus that's <laughs> practical you're you're stopping it you know that's right. i don't i don't think there's anything wrong with that that's i'm not well, sure what, I what, had what i'm saying though is i, did I don't think i ever had the strength of character to do that when i was a kid i think it, i didn't really ever get picked on that badly but it happened every now and then it would never be like I don't remember it ever going on for long enough for me to snap and hit somebody, but you know, every once in a while someone would screw with me in some way. Like I was thinking about that with this book, like this doesn't happen to kids anymore. Right. Like, is this, this was just a part of life when we were growing you up. Can't, you can't bully anymore. I mean, yeah. And I'm not, I'm not saying that with like a, you know, a, a wisp of longing or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. You're not, you're not like, Oh, the good old days. I, I'm just saying like how much, kid. how much times have changed. Like, you know, bullying is, it is. It's terrible, and it and it, and it drives yeah, kids. It, it 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 is. I mean, I guess on the one hand, maybe it does build character. I mean, I did that. I never got picked on again after doing that. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and, in, in and, your and, case, I don't remember ever feeling like it picked it. It built any character. I mean, it just it's I, like I said, I didn't get picked on in any kind of pervasive fashion. I was not like on the lower end of the totem pole in school or anything. But it did happen to me, and it's like some of my worst memories. Those those are not. Those are the, the bad times, you know. Yeah, like absolutely. Really, no, I, and I and, and and yeah, yeah. They were they were not fun. Because it wasn't always somebody. You know, it's one thing if you're acting like a dork in some way, and people pick on you, so you stop acting like a dork. Then maybe it's constructive. But it's just people being cruel, like for no reason. I know? think so, and I think I think maybe we have turned a corner. I'm hoping that we have. You know, um, 
I know my kids don't don't put up with that. I think when my when my daughter was in kindergarten, man, she was so mouthy, but she and she was, <laughs> she was bossy and mouthy. And oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that that there's this one kid in class, and he was bigger than all the other kids, and he would pick on the other kids and my daughter would stand up for him and just tell him that's not right i'm gonna go tell the and like get in his face and so she would always go to the principal's office with him because she'd get into you know she'd get into it with him and so an altercation yeah that's so they'd send them both to the principal's office and it, and we we're like for the longest time we were worried because she would always be at the principal's office and then we went to our first like parent teacher conference um for kindergarten and the teacher tells us, well, this is what's going on. There's this kid and he's a jerk. And, and so she stands up and tells him, you know, he's wrong and blah, blah, blah. And right. then, you know, they get into it and then they both go, and we're like, oh, so she's standing up for him. And I think that happens more and more now. I think more kids are aware, more kids are aware of, you know, that that takes place and they don't put up with it, you know? Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah. I hope it's like that. It was, I hope so too, you know? And, and I think, you know, if I, if, if my kids, if I would, if I were ever to catch my kids like making fun of somebody or whatever, I'd kick their butts. But oh yeah, no, I wouldn't. You know, it's it's not to, that weird. The behavior is honestly not that weird to occasionally engage in some picking on somebody. It's it's pretty universal. I think most people, at least when we were kids, you get sucked into it. Sometimes the way yeah. Sue does in the book, you know, you just you don't even realize you're, you're doing it, or you know, it's you don't realize how much is hurting somebody's feelings or something. And you know, I definitely. I think I probably gave as good as I got, to be yeah. honest. I think I got picked on sometimes and I probably participated in picking on somebody sometimes. Yeah. I, you know, not a lot of either one, but both things happen. I, 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 wrote, I wrote a note here and I was thinking about, I think like, I don't remember there being a lot of picking on each other when we were in elementary school, but mm -hmm. like junior high school age, like maybe like 11 to 14, I remember it just being like, it was like a constant part of life, like everywhere you went. It was like the way I would imagine you know, like living in the jungle, like it was just everybody was so cruel all the time. Like yeah, if you weren't yeah. careful, you really had to watch your, your butt. Like I felt really bad. I went to pick up Alex yesterday from his little school. I just kind of walked up to the crowd of kids and I was like, Hey, I'm here. Like you ready to leave? And he was like, Oh yeah. He didn't like want to look me in the eye. Cause he was embarrassed. <laughs> I was talking. And I was like, Oh, I felt bad. Like I, I think that's the first time I've seen him react that way. Be kind of yeah. like embarrassed that I was yeah, talking. That's, to him. That's I was not like, cool, oh yeah. no, like not yeah, that. How are you doing? Yeah. Yeah, I've had that before too. My uh, my daughter, my daughter. Uh, I remember uh, my mom went to pick up my my son and daughter at their school, mm -hmm. and uh, so my son comes out, you know, gets in the car, <clears throat> really easy to spot. But my mom didn't know where where my daughter is, so she spots her. <laughs> and my daughter, I think, is in middle school at the time. Might have been uh -huh. high school. Rolls down the window and starts yelling for her. Oh, yeah. He's over here. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's terrible. <laughs> so my daughter's yeah. like, oh, my God. Like, puts her face in her hands, like, oh, you know, oh. completely devastated this would happen. I mean. I had a really weird, uh, maybe I can cut this later because I don't know if it's relevant, but I was a substitute teacher. And I, I remember I taught this chorus class one day. Uh -huh. And the kids were, like, all so talented and, like, so confident and stuff like that. And I remember this, this guy gets up, he was like about, I want to say he was 16 or 17, not like a little tiny kid, you know, and he sang and he played guitar and he was great. And like, I just was really impressed with this young man. 
And then like a couple weeks later, I go to the batting cage and he's working at the batting cage, like selling you the tokens for the batting cage. And I was like, oh, hey, like I was your teacher the other day in chorus class. And he, he looks at me and he like looks aside at the other kids next to him. And he's like, gee, thanks for embarrassing me. Wow. And I was just like so shocked. I was like, you did not seem like the kind of kid that would have a thin skin like that. Like wow. it was like a completely different perception of the person's character that I got yeah. from like the two to the 200. It was so weird. But anyway, yeah. I, th I, I thought it, you'd be proud of how talented. I mean, it wasn't what yeah. the hell are you embarrassed about? You know, whatever. I think it does. By the time I was 16, I was not embarrassed anymore. I wasn't as sensitive by that age. Like, yeah, once, were, once I had a girlfriend and a car and like, look, yeah. you know, I'm, I think by, by the time I'm, I was like 16 or 17, my, my group of friends had formed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, you sort of have your own little tribe at that point. Yeah. And anybody yeah, outside, and, and you care about what the tribe thinks about you. Yeah. Anybody, anybody outside the tribe, you're like, yeah, whatever. I don't care. You know, whatever. Right. Right. And that's sort of how I was. I, I didn't, you know, I had my little tribe of friends. You know, it was like five or six of us that, that we would always hang out and we would sure. always do things together and stuff like that. And outside of them, I really didn't care. Like, eh, whatever. Um, no, but no not by that, that age. But, but before that, when I before I got to that point, though, yeah. you know, I was sensitive to appearance and, sure. and and basically, I just wanted to keep my head down and basically. not have an appearance, you know, because I don't want anybody to notice me, type of thing. Well, what do you think? So to bring it kind of back to the book, not that we're not talking about issues about mm -hmm. the book, but. There's this Twilight Zone episode where there's a kid who has like ultimate powers, like he can. The cornfield. Is that what it is? Is that what's called? I don't know. Is, is is that the one where he wishes him out to the corn cornfield? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He can like so so everybody, all the family in the house just lives in terror of him and lets him watch yeah. cartoons all day. Yeah. And I was thinking about that. Do you think if kids, right? Let's say that telekinesis was like a common power among kids. How many thirteen-year-olds? would slaughter everyone in their junior high school every so, every single one of them i mean it would happen all, all the time <laughs> every just, single one of them you could not yeah. give that kind of power to like kids you know especially yeah. i think we talked about this in relation to something else we did but the movie forbidden planet which stephen king i think references a couple of times in different things but the movie is essentially about an alien race that develops like powers with their mind the infinite powers to do just about anything they want with their mind but it turns out that they haven't controlled the, the, the jungle-like instincts within them, like the bloodlust and id that's deep down in them. And so they end yeah, up wiping yeah. themselves out. And it's obviously a metaphor for nuclear weapons, right. for like a civilization that's developed nuclear weapons, but is still a monkey straight out of the jungle. Right. Oh, it was in Godzilla we were talking about this. Yeah. But um, I think that's what Carrie's doing, too. I think Carrie has a lot to do with... Um, Oh, I know where Stephen King references the movie Forbidden Planet in the Tommyknockers. Uh, one of the characters, a little boy gets teleported to another planet, and it's the same name of the planet from the movie Forbidden Planet. Oh, so okay. anyway, Stephen King has seen this film. Yeah, of course. But um, I was thinking Carrie is like that, too. And there's explicit references in this to nuclear war. When uh, they kill the pigs, he, he hits the pig over the head with a sledgehammer, and he's like, there you go. Now you don't have to worry about no bomb no more, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I was thinking that's a really random thing to say. Yeah, that, that's, that's what I thought too. But I think um, Carrie and Carrie's mental powers and the power to wipe out our enemies through fire and destruction is, is there's a metaphor there that's talking about nuclear war. Well, and, 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 and also in a child. No, no, I, I agree. I'm just going, I'm, I'm riffing on what you're saying because Carrie is, she's a child, you know, she's, she's, she's a teenager. She, so she has these powers. Right. She's not mature enough to really 
understand them or use them or control them or whatever. I mean, she can control them. She can use them to cause, but, but she doesn't understand the power, the, the power that she has, which is yeah. a great metaphor for saying like, you know, we're a bunch of dumb monkeys. You know, we can't understand, you know, these, these things that we're, that we're dealing with every day. Yeah. And not to get too heavy, but obviously there's a feminist take on that. Yeah. Where it's asking a question, I think metaphorically, what would the world be like if women had equal power with men? Like if, mm. if women could violently kill men that bother them and things like that, if, if huh. you know, there's, there's a, and it's obviously it's tied to her femininity in, in yeah. the book and, and, you know, her, her sexuality and stuff like that. So I, I definitely think there's, there's a whole other, you could, this is why I think Stephen King sometimes feels like literature and why he gets criticized that way. There's, there's some pretty good interpretive value going on in this book. Yeah, there's, um, certainly is. Yeah. there's some themes that you could actually spend a little time talking about. You right. wouldn't be wasting your time. It's like the way yeah. Quentin Tarantino's movies are like just barely good enough, high quality enough that you could really say some smart things about them and not be wasting yeah. your time. Um, I think Stephen King's kind of like that. It's very enjoyable. It's enjoyable just on its surface, but it's got a little bit of interpretive context with almost hints at being something a little more serious. And that's why he catches like flack from people right, as a writer. Right, right. I think that's a good They're like, oh, you think you're, you think you're like a literary writer? Well, I'm going to criticize you like you're a literary writer then. So right. he gets, you know, raked over the coals. But I think we've, I think we're, what are we? We're probably about a, a little more. We're than there. Than yeah, we're, we're there. So, so, so uh, biggest surprise? Biggest surprise for me was the epistolary thing. I, I didn't expect that. And I didn't mention it, but one of the weird things about that choice is that there's a little bit of tension in the in the scientific literature that's in the book about whether Sue Stern and her boyfriend set Carrie up. Yeah. Right? To, to, to have her do this. And yet that's resolved in the book because you have this third-person omniscient narrative telling you yeah. that's 100% not true. And so it sort of waters down the epistolary thing. I don't, so I don't really know why he did that. But anyway. Yeah. The tragedy well, thing really works, though. Well, because nobody else would know that, you know, except for Sue. Right. Right. She's the only one left, right? But we get that that whole thing where uh, Carrie enters her mind and looks for herself to see mm -hmm. that yeah. Sue wasn't wasn't really, and it kind of like vindicates Sue in 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 terms of like now she knows that Carrie knows that she wasn't a part of it, and that like she can rest easy now. Yeah, my my that was a surprise. I think my big my biggest surprise was just how sympathetic King made Carrie, like. You know, yeah. in, in the movie, she's not at all. I mean, she's no, sort of, she's, no, sort of she's, she's sort she's of a little sympathetic. Else, but, but you get so much more of it in the book. Like you can yeah. identify with her and understand where she's coming from. Like you feel sorry for her and like Sue felt sorry for her and stuff like that. And, um, and so, you know, you, you said it was a tragedy and a tragedy is where you have a great hero or something fall from grace. Um, right. And that's that's absolutely what you have here, but see, it's a tragedy because she's a, like an unrealized hero. You know, she has all this power, she has all this potential. Right. You could say, yeah. and yeah. and she has this fall from grace, and and it's not really her her own undoing, which is a, a bit different. Like a tragedy is typically, you know, the definition is that it's the person's own making. You know, the fall yeah, that's, there, there that's the people. thing where it doesn't it doesn't fit the classical tragic mode, right? right? She doesn't have like the tragic flaw, and it's like yeah. we said before, it's not really her choices that lead to this. Although yeah. she decides to murder everybody, yeah, but 
that that's like just one decision. That's just right. like she snaps and gets. That's not. It's not. Wasn't her choices that led her to that moment. She's but completely is, just but carried along. See, like I said, a slow moving train wreck. You can see that the actions of the, these other people, what they're leading up to, and you're like, oh man, that sucks. You know, yeah. I, I know what's yeah, going to yeah. happen, and it really sucks that that's going to happen. You know. Yes. Exactly, and so that's why you're looking forward to seeing how she kills these people. Right. You, can't, you, right. you can't quite blame her, you know. So, well, that I um, think is what you you were saying it's not horror, but I think that there's a certain amount of like, like you said, like a voyeuristic sense of like, ooh, how is she going to kill all these yeah, people? Yeah. Like that's that's what you go to horror, but you know, you read horror because yeah, like, yeah, I guess how does, so. how does this person die? Like, let me read right. about these. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, that's a good point. That's so, a good point. Well, okay, well, so I guess it's up to me, right? I I, I have think the final so. yeah. say. Um, yeah. Yep, and I definitely would vote for it. I really enjoyed it. Um, I think it uh, it's up there with some of my favorite Stephen King books. It was good, and it's it's short, which is really yeah um, is not always what I want out of a book, uh, but it was it was effectively short, and I and I like that. I appreciate that. Well, I will I will say absolutely, it's a classic. I like the book. We didn't even talk about. It. I mean, this is Stephen King's first book. This yeah. is the book that gave us Stephen King, who's a right. huge cultural force. So we didn't. Well, even that's, talk what about was, that. that's what I was going to say. I mean, Stephen yeah. King, as a uh, as, as a mythic figure, you know, mm-hmm. has has done a lot for liter- for for literature. I mean, for for pulp, uh, pop, pop literature, pop culture, yeah, pop yeah, literature. Yeah. He is a yeah. definitely a pop icon, a pop culture icon. So um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, but the book itself is a great book. I mean, it really. Reads well. It's a great story. There's a lot of depth. It's not two dimensional, which I think is a problem with, you know, a lot of these type, type, kinds of genres. You really um, have empathy for the characters, and and uh, and and you can understand them and stuff. So yeah, I, I let's do it. Let's drink to that. We'll toast. It. Okay, great. Toasting okay. this classic. All right, this is now this is now a classic according to uh, Dave McCarthy and Clint Lanier. So <laughs> according to us, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, according to us, for what that's worth, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think we're going to go ahead and sign off, right? I think we're done. We, we, I think, we I think that's it. So thanks for joining us, everybody. Good drink. I recommend this drink. Please, people go out and uh, have this, but be careful because I feel like maybe it'll sneak up on you. Because I got through I got through most of a half pint of Captain Morgan. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I downed mine pretty quickly. So Yeah, so it's pretty, right. pretty easy drinking. Dave MacArthur signing off. Clint Lanier signing off. Thank you, everybody. Peace out, peace out everybody. That's it for episode 64 of Toasting the Classics. For those playing along at home, get some lemon juice, apple cider, and maple syrup to make a lumberjack cocktail as we don our flannel shirts for a discussion of Nirvana's album Nevermind. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. Send us show ideas, comments, complaints, and let us know what horrible deeds you'd do with awesome telekinetic powers. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at @attractivenuisance. Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics.